everyone, it's Elizabeth and Valerie, and we're back with another episode of Born in the Right Generation, where we give you our modern take on classic rock. We're dedicating today's episode to the Who's epic rock opera, Tommy, and the movie that goes with it. Before we get into it, make sure to follow us on Spotify and Instagram. And we're back. So we're going to start off by talking about the album that Tommy was based on. So the album Tommy, obviously by The Who, was released in May of 1969, so about six years before the movie was released. And it contained the song Pinball Wizard, which was released as a single and charted pretty highly. I can't remember the exact numbers, but it charted well in both the U.S. and the U.K. And Pinball Wizard is now one of their most famous songs, probably, well, likely because of its more pop rock vibe rather than their other more hard rock type songs and they still play this song quite frequently today but it is one of their most famous songs so tommy is also a concept album and the concept behind it is a little bit weird and i feel like the actual message behind it even i'm still not 100 percent sure like how to grasp it but we'll go through it so the sort of plot that the album follows is that there is a boy named tommy walker and He goes, quote, deaf, dumb, and blind, and then he becomes a pinball champion, and then he starts a cult surrounding himself. And that's the very short version of the plot. The actual plot, which we will get into later, is a lot longer and more complicated, but um, Pete Townshend, the guitarist for The Who, actually, he wrote most of the album and he came up with the idea, although John Entwistle also wrote a couple songs for it, most notably Fiddle About, which is... If you listen to it, it's a really creepy song, and I think he actually sings it too on the album, not on the cast recording. So Roger sings lead vocals throughout most of the album. Pete usually sings backup or occasionally will sing the bridge, and John does sing a couple songs. And the two major like recurring themes throughout the album are the Pinball Wizard theme, the opening guitar riff for Pinball Wizard, and the Hear Me Feel Me sort of motif that repeats again throughout the album, especially at the beginning. And then definitely at the very end, when he is coming to this revelation that he is not a messiah character, the concept of the album is very weird, and that's probably why, as years have gone by, a lot of critics have sort of realized that. When Tommy first came out, it got really good reviews with, like, it got really good reviews with the critics, people praised it for the songwriting, for the idea behind it, and then... As years went by, people started looking past all the hype behind or the hype behind Tommy, and they sort of realized that the concept was kind of pretentious. Which, I guess, if you take a step back and you look at it from the non, like if you take out sort of the pinball parts and all the weird stuff, and you look at it about sort of the rise and fall of this kid who starts a cult around himself and sort of elevates himself to a godlike status. Like, I guess I can sort of see a message there about maybe pride, but I'm really not sure. And so that was one of the biggest things is that people said it was pretentious. And another thing a lot of people complained about was that it was hard to follow because I have, I've listened to both the regular album and the cast recording from the movie. And it is very difficult to sort of like visualize a story or like the concept in your head because it's like not very specific. The movie makes it a lot clearer and a disclaimer, I did see the movie before I listened to the album. 
so I was able to visualize it clearly, but I can see if you do start by listening to the album, it is harder to be able to understand the concept and understand the specifics behind it. Like the setting, like all the characters and everything. It is it is difficult to do that, but I think overall I do like this album a lot. I really enjoy it. I haven't actually listened to as many Who albums as I should, so my current favorite one is Who's Next, but this is this was a really good album, although I'm not sure if I would have enjoyed it as much had I not seen the movie first. So that's a little bit of background on Tommy the album, and so now we're going to go into the main part of the podcast for today, which is Tommy the movie, and... Just buckle up because this is going to be a wild ride. This movie is... This movie is kind of crazy. Yep, I definitely agree with what Elizabeth just said. This movie is absolutely all over the place. I remember when I first watched it, I was laughing all the way through because I thought it was just ridiculous. The characters were ridiculous. The plot was ridiculous. But, you know, that just made it so much more entertaining. So, Tommy the Movie came out in 1975. It was based on the album that came before it. It featured a really big star-studded ensemble cast. It had um, all the members of The Who in it, although Roger Daltrey played, you know, the biggest role as the lead character, Tommy. Uh, Keith Moon was in it uh, as a character as well, Uncle Ernie. Other notable people who appeared in that movie also include Anne-Margaret, Oliver Reed, Eric Clapton, Tina Turner, Elton John, and Jack Nicholson, which I was very surprised to see turn up in his scene, although he wasn't there for very long. It was, because he, you know, out of everybody there, I think Jack Nicholson, you know, has the most, you know, the the most well-known career out of all of them in film. So it was quite surprising to see him show up in Tommy. But Jack actually agreed to play a small role because um, the director was Ken Russell, and he said, quote, Russell's films intrigue me. Some I like very much, some I don't like at all, and I want to find out what makes them tick. So he was just decided to come in and play a role. Yes, I find it especially interesting that he was in this movie, and like this movie and all its complete crackheadery versus he was also in the same year he was in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which he ended up winning an Oscar for. So I just find it amusing that he had time to do both projects in the same year. But you know what? Whatever he likes, I guess good on him for finding what he enjoys and being in the movie. Although he was a little bit of a creepy character, but most people were in this movie, so. I mean, Jack Nicholson had a really small role, and I guess like like you said, in uh, Cuckoo's Nest, he obviously had a much bigger role, so I guess he you know, had a a bit of free time, just decided to come in and do this, you know, just because he was intrigued. And he actually said about, you know, his role in the film that in his entire career, uh, quote, there was only one time when a director said to me, okay, come right down the pike and just look beautiful, Jack. And that was Ken Russell on Tommy, Uh, which I thought was a pretty funny quote because he really didn't actually say much in that movie. He's saying about healing Tommy, but, like, imagine you're Jack Nicholson. You're going from, like, One Floor of the Cuckoo's Nest, which obviously, if any of you have seen that or read the book, you'll know it's a very serious, heavy movie. So imagine going from that, and then you just go to a different set, and then suddenly you're on the set of Tommy, and they're telling you that you have to sing about healing this kid by pushing him into a mirror to make him be able to see and speak and hear again. Like, what... Like, what kind of whiplash must that be? I know. I find it interesting, though, that both movies, Cuckoo's Nest and Tommy, despite how different they were, were both nominated 
uh, for Oscars at the Academy Awards that year. All right, well, yes, but there's a little bit of a difference. Cuckoo's Nest won the Big Five Awards, Best Picture, Actor, Actress, Screenplay, and Director, whereas Tommy was nominated for two but didn't win anything. He was nominated for Best Actress for Anne-Margaret and I think Best Original like Soundtrack yeah. to a movie. It was a musical score or something. It was for music. Yeah. Yeah, Pete Townshend was nominated, but neither of them ended up winning. Still, I mean, for a movie that's so outlandish and out there and kind of experimental in a way, it's actually quite interesting that, you know, the Academy took notice. Yes, I mean, I'll be honest, the only reason I really watched this movie was because of Roger Daltrey. Um, this this movie was actually what got me into The Who. Valerie and, I, Valerie and I watched this together, but this is the movie that really, like, made me more interested in The Who. So after this, I started listening to more of their songs and started learning more about them, and I don't know, I feel like this is a weird place to start if you're just getting into The Who, but it worked out for me, mostly because of Roger Daltrey, bless him. Anyway, so why don't we get into the plot now, and we're going to do our best to explain this movie, even though the plot is not the most comprehensive, and there's a lot of things that sound like they really shouldn't be in there, but they are. So the movie starts off with Tommy's parents, and... I think, what year is it? It's like 1921? It's 1945. The very first scene is the war, 1945. Right, okay. 19, I think 1921 is where the album yeah, starts yeah. off. There are differences between the album and the movie. So the movie starts off, it's like 1945 is sort of the end of World War II. And Tommy's dad is going to go fight in the war. And so it's this very weird scene with Tommy's mother in like a blue evening gown and his dad in the army uniform and they're like dancing around and then they're running through fire and then Tommy's dad's plane gets shot down and his mom is like in this sort of bomb shelter but it's like a cage it's very weird but then it sort of transitions to her getting a letter where she like she hears that he's dead and so then she on I think it's on actually it's on victory day yeah that she gives birth and so then they sing how it's a boy Mrs. Walker it's a boy and of course that boy ends up being Tommy and so yeah so his dad is supposedly dead because his plane got shot down and then Mrs. Walker takes her son to this holiday camp where she meets this guy named Frank who is Oliver Reed and this this sequence is also really creepy. Like, again, a lot of this movie is kind of uncomfortable to watch. But <laughs> they go to this holiday camp, and then they sing a song about the holiday camp. And then at the end of, by, like, by the end of the song, she has fallen in love with Frank. And then they sort of, like, go off and start a new family together. And then this is where things really Yeah, this escalated really quickly. And when when we were first watching it, I was, I did not see this coming. Like, to be honest, this entire, like, everything we just described happened, like, in the first few minutes of the film. Like, it was, like, 15 minutes. This entire massive plot, you know, introduction. And and then it escalates to where Tommy's father, who his mother thought was dead actually shows up at their at their house again he's alive you know surprise and um he surprises both frank and tommy's mother nora and this leads to this whole struggle where frank kills tommy's biological father the captain 
And then in front of Tommy, by the way. Yeah, in front of Tommy. And this this causes Tommy to like go into this I don't know, like this mental state where he just becomes deaf, dumb, and blind. It it's not explained super specifically, like in scientific terms or whatever, but just know that like how did they describe it? I don't even know. So later on in the movie, I think during the Jack Nicholson scene, they claim it's like an emotional trauma. But the way it happens in the movie, it's this weird sort of trippy psychedelic sequence. But the thing I find funny is that the whole time his parents are like, or his parents, I mean by that I mean his mother and Frank, they're both yelling at him saying, you didn't hear it, you didn't see it, he's not going to say anything. And they're yelling that over and over again. And then later they act shocked when he doesn't hear it. He can't speak and he can't see. And so... I don't know, it's like an emotional, it's like some sort of emotional trauma that triggers him being deaf, dumb, and blind. And so, he pretty much ends up going through life, and he can't see, and he can't hear, and he can't speak, and then his parents try and take him to church, and then they sing about how he doesn't know what day it is, he doesn't know who Jesus is, or what praying is, and that, I mean, that song is good, like, the songs on this album are all great, but... Uh, I don't know. So they sing about that at Christmas, and then suddenly it cuts to a scene where they're in, a cult, like they're in this church of Marilyn Monroe, and the priest is Eric Clapton. I honestly think so, that's one of my favorite that, scenes. That, it's so unexpected. Like if you if you go in not knowing anything about it, like we did, like all of a sudden, you know, we're at this church, and yes. it's of Marilyn Monroe, and Eric Clapton is the priest, like. Saying that yes. sentence doesn't make any sense, and it didn't make any sense when we watched it either. It was it was very, you know, very strange. Yes, but he plays guitar, which is always a treat. And apparently he actually, he was in the movie as sort of a favor to Pete Townshend, because apparently Pete helped him get off heroin, and so to repay him, he was like, oh, yeah, I'll be in your movie. So, I don't know, this scene is really weird, but... The main reason I enjoy it is because Tommy finally turned into Roger Daltrey. So now he's, like, an adult. And by adult, I mean, I think he's actually supposed to be, like, a teenager. He's in his 30s in, his, in this movie, actually. Yeah, Roger was, like, 30 or 31, I think, when he was in the movie. But I don't, he looked really good for 30. That's all I can say. Like, really good for 30. And 30's not even that old, but he, he looked really good. The point is... He is now Roger Daltrey, and he's going to this church of Marilyn Monroe, and Eric Clapton is playing the guitar and preaching the good word of Marilyn Monroe, and then Tommy ends up, like, breaking the big statue because he won't, like, he won't pray to it, and I have no idea what was even going on there. Oh, but the rest of the Who does show up in this scene, and they're wearing the absolute weirdest outfits, like, there are these long sack dresses for some reason, and I I have no idea. I don't know. I guess they were going for, like, a, a priestly look. Made of brown potato sacks? Like, they, it was so weird. Who was in charge of costuming? But the rest of the Who, I think it's, I'm not, I can't remember if Keith is in that scene, but Pete and John are both in it, and they're wearing long dresses, and they're, like, helping give out communion of the Church of Marilyn Monroe. And so that is... I don't know, if that wasn't enough whiplash for you transitioning to that, it gets worse. So, right after that, they decide that they have to go cure Tommy. And then, this is 
another really weird scene where he goes to this... Is it a brothel? Like, I'm not even 100% sure what it is. I think it's... Yeah. I think it's a brothel or... It's some brothel or strip club. But he goes to this prostitute who is the Acid Queen, played by Tina Turner. Tina Turner's performance is absolutely amazing, though. I'm just gonna say that. She really, like... Okay, yeah, she snapped she on this performance. Like, I know David Bowie was actually... He was going to be the Acid Queen, and I think that would have been kind of awesome to see. But I think they made the right call in the end by choosing Tina Turner because she was, she played that role really well. Like, her singing was on point, her acting was a little bit terrifying, but I think that was what it was supposed to be. And I'll be honest, I have no idea what was actually happening in this scene because he gets into this machine. Like, she takes him upstairs and then he gets into this machine and they take out his blood or something and put it back in. And then, like, he, there's a bunch of spikes and then his clothes disappear and reappear at points, and I'm not exactly sure what's going yeah, on. Yeah, <laughs> like I said before, nothing in this movie is explained very well. You just have to sort of roll with it. Yeah, so she basically, they sing, about, they sing the song Acid Queen, which is also a great song. But, yes, his, like, clothes appear and reappear, and at one point he's just wearing, like, a sort of cloth or whatever, and it's, like, Jesus imagery. And... I guess, like, I could sort of see that fitting in with the ending, but it just made no sense to me. The main part that I was paying attention to was the fact that Roger Daltrey was not wearing a shirt. And you know what? If that's why you watch the movie, then good for you, because that is why I decided to, like, finish watching the movie in the first place. Also because the plot seemed hilarious. And it kind of was, but it was also terrifying. And so this scene was really creepy, but... You just power through it, and you appreciate the Yeah, and things. also, I think another thing that made this scene really creepy was, I think this is where Keith Moon, as Uncle Ernie, showed up, like, in his first major scene. Yes, yes. Because <laughs> he, he was, like, I don't know, managing the brothel, the strip club, or whatever, like... He was, like, the guy at the front who took yeah. the money or something, or, like, he, like, would tell it people where very, to go. It was very, very creepy. Like... The way he was, like, styled. He, he legitimately looked like a pedophile yes. or something. It was so... It's so jarring. It's because he had the missing teeth. They, like, blacked out some of his yeah. teeth. It, it was not <laughs> comfortable. That was what really freaked me out. Which is weird because Keith Moon, normally, like, if you've seen pictures of Keith Moon or you, like, know anything about them, Keith Moon was, like, the cute one of the Who. He had a baby face and he was adorable, even though he was also completely insane. But still, like, I'm honestly impressed that they made him look like that. And I think his acting in this movie was also pretty good because... He really, like, every scene, I watched this movie with my sister, and she was freaked out by Keith Moon in this movie, which, you know, probably rightfully so, because he was, he was terrifying, but he played the role really well. So, after the Acid Queen scene, he is not cured, because it was actually his dad, Frank, who took him to go try and get him cured, so it didn't work. So then they were like, well, we're gonna get Tommy a babysitter, so they... They start saying about how, do you think it's alright to leave the boy with Cousin Kevin? And so, they do. Fun fact, the guy who played Cousin Kevin in the movie, I believe he was the one who was in Cats on Broadway, right? He or, was, Was he Broadway was. or West End? Yeah, he was, he he was in Cats. He played Rum Tum Tugger, yep. right? Yep, Yes. So, there's a fun little tidbit. He was also in Jesus Christ Superstar. As who? I don't know, I forgot the role he played, but he, I remember he was in, in there. <laughs> huh. Well, he was 
kind of also terrifying. Like, this is probably my least favorite part of the movie is when they leave Tommy with his babysitters because they were all so awful to him. And Cousin Kevin spends the entire time just beating up on poor Tommy for no reason. Like, it hurts my heart to see this. He, like, waterboards him at one point, and then he irons him. Like, I know, it was so... It Why was, are you doing that? It was so disturbing. I felt so bad for Tommy. Exactly, he didn't deserve that. And then, like, his parents didn't even notice. His cousin Kevin, like, curled his hair all nice and neat before his parents got home. But he, he like, hooked him to the door and, like, sprayed him with a hose. And, like, I was so upset. He was just punching him. Like, what did Tommy do to deserve that? And why did his parents leave him with such terrible people? His parents are just oblivious. They really are. So, I, I did not enjoy that. But it gets even worse. Like, you think that was bad. But then Uncle Ernie shows up again, and this time he's Tommy's babysitter. And, of course, Uncle Ernie is Keith Moon. And this is, for some reason, the song that John Entwistle wrote. He, John Entwistle thought that this was a good idea to put in. It's the song Fiddle About. And, like, it sounds bad enough when you think about it, but the second you think even more about it, it becomes a thousand times worse. Like, <sighs> Like, they didn't even try to hide anything. Uncle Ernie was straight up, like, molesting Tommy, and we all just said, okay. What What was that about? It was, I think it was just, like, another thing to highlight, you know, all the torment that Tommy was going through. So this is probably one of my least favorite sequences in the entire movie, just because I don't understand why they decided to make Uncle Ernie like that. And for some reason, he shows up again in the movie, even after he gets kicked out. Like, straight up, Tommy's dad catches him in Tommy's bedroom, and then he's still invited back to hang out with the family, at, like, towards the end of the movie. And I don't get it. But apparently Keith had a lot of fun in the role, because, like, he would always want to do his Uncle Ernie at concerts and stuff. He would, like, yep. ask to be able to sing and... Yeah, it was creepy, but Keith did enjoy this role. He had a lot of fun, and I guess I can't fault him for that, even though maybe I'm a little concerned that he had such a good time playing such a terrible role. But, I don't know. I mean, he also shows up as himself later on in the movie, like just a little bit later, but his Uncle Ernie performance was really something else, and I don't know. I'm very impressed that he still manages to be the baby of the group or the cute one when he was out here doing stuff like that. But good on him. And right after this scene is where things about, you know, a pinball wizard, which is the most famous song off the album, I would say, starts to pick up because, you know, you watch the trailer for this movie and the original trailer shows the pinball scene, the pinball wizard scene. And so far, you know, I guess like what? A good half of the movie has occurred and nothing about pinball has really shown up. And especially about the fact that, you know, Tommy is supposed to be this pinball, you know, amazing pinball player, the audience, it leaves the audience wondering, you know, where is the whole concept of pinball going to show up? And it shows up around here. Because after the Uncle Ernie scene, Tommy essentially wanders off into a junkyard and finds a pinball machine and starts playing it. And once again, the scene is not explained very well. Like, why is there a pinball machine in the junkyard? Why is it fully functional? How did Tommy even get into the junkyard if he's, you know, deaf, blind, and dumb? 
You also have to remember that there's like a second Tommy in this scene. Like there's Tommy who can apparently see, who is like leading real Tommy towards the pinball machine, and I'm not exactly sure what that was supposed to be. But there are two Tommies in this scene. Yes, it was extremely was confusing. It was very confusing. It was like a, a vision of himself or something. Like again, it's like I said, it's not very clear what exactly happened, but. Essentially, the main, you know, the main part is that he becomes this pinball prodigy, and this, you know, attracts the attention of the media, he becomes really famous, you know, people suddenly treat him like he's a celebrity, and then, this is probably my favorite scene in the entire movie, is when Tommy faces the pinball wizard who is played by Elton John, and this entire musical number is just shot really well. The music is great. Is. The the choreography is great. Um, the whole color and the aesthetic of it, it's fantastic. It just works so well together. And it's very it really surreal. Does. It's very surreal. Like, especially Elton John's outfit and his... Yes! Boots. His giant shoes. They were like seven feet tall. And like, I need those. Like, those are the shoes that I want in my life. Yeah, I know. It's shot really well. I remember saying to Elizabeth, I think, when we were watching it, that this scene alone made the movie deserve an Oscar. It, 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 if you haven't <laughs> seen it, I would definitely suggest you watch it on YouTube. It's very, it's very well done. Anyways, they sing Pinball Wizard while this, you know, whole showdown championship is going on. And obviously, Tommy wins, and he becomes the new Pinball Wizard. And it's just... This is where I think uh, the Who also show up as like a backing band to sing to yes. sing Pinball Wizard, even though Elton John is singing the the main vocals. Um, yeah. But I think uh, Elizabeth said that this was also where the audience who were watching the the scene they started mobbing the stage, and it was unscripted apparently. Yes. Well, the thing is. All the songs in this movie were done, like, were pre-recorded, except I believe they played Pinball Wizard live for that scene. And so the audience, like, obviously Pete Townshend was doing his usual windmills, and so as soon as he did his guitar smash, the audience freaked out, and so they started, like, mobbing the stage, which, obviously, if I was there, I would do the exact same thing. I mean, I don't know. This is also my favorite scene in the movie, just because everything is, it's so good. Like, obviously, I love this song. And I love Elton John. I love Roger's outfit in this scene. He's wearing, like, this green silk suit thing. It's so good. And I love, I especially love how the Pinball Wizard's pinball machine, instead of, like, having regular buttons and dials, it's a piano. But also I find it amusing that he's singing about how he's losing to this pinball champion when he's not actually playing pin. He's, like, barely even playing pinball. He spends the whole number, like, stomping around in those boots and singing about... Why is he lose? Like, how am I being defeated, and all that? But I do think Elton John was a really good choice to play the pinball wizard. I think I know he clearly wanted the role because they did have a couple of other people in consideration for it. I know um, Rod Stewart was actually going to be the pinball wizard. Like he was offered the role, and Elton John convinced him not to take it, only to go take the role himself. And so I've actually listened, if you listen on uh, Rod Stewart's Greatest Hits album, you can hear his version of Pinball Wizard. 
And I do think they made the right choice by giving the role to Elton John because the way he does it, he does it so... Like, he has a choir backing him, and instead of, like, the guitar and the bass and everything, he's got a string quartet and a brass, like a brass orchestra or something like that. I have no idea what sort of vibe he was going for with it, but I don't think it fit. And I do think the Elton John version actually ended up being more successful than the Who version on the charts. So, yes, that was very interesting. And you know what? I do, I love the Elton John version. I think he, he really does play the Pimple Wizard great. But there was also, what, what was it, Stevie Wonder? It was Stevie Wonder who also wanted to play the Pimple Wizard. But, you know, obviously he's Stevie Wonder, he's blind. And so Pete Townshend was kind of confused and he was like, well, we can't have the pinball wizard singing about a deaf, dumb, and blind kid when the pinball wizard himself is actually blind. And, I don't know, I thought that was quite an amusing story because, like, imagine being Pete and you have to go explain something like that to Stevie Wonder, of all people. Like, I don't know, I feel like Stevie Wonder ended up getting the short stick for a lot of, whenever he interacted with a lot of those rock bands. Yeah. That reminded, that reminds me of another story with Stevie Wonder and uh, Led Zeppelin and George Harrison, but we won't get into that. That's actually, I'm going to go off topic if we get into that. So let's go back on track onto the plot. And what happens next is essentially this very surreal scene with Anne Margaret. Yes, this is the, like, hands down the weirdest scene of the movie. Weirdest scene. Yes. Essentially, I think the whole premise of it is that, um, Anna Margaret watches Tommy's victory on TV, and she's, you know, celebrating, you know, her new life, her new luxurious life coming from Tommy's fame. And then she has some kind of breakdown because, you know, she still feels guilty over what she partially did to Tommy. And I'm not exactly sure why the directors chose to do it this way, but she essentially, you know... She's, like, swimming in in a whole flood of baked beans and chocolate and detergent foam. It's so weird. It came out of nowhere. There was no explanation for why that happened. Apparently that took three days to shoot. Um, apparently she was hallucinating or something about, you know, caused by her guilt. That's what I read. I still have no idea why baked beans, chocolate, and foam was chosen. Uh, apparently, Anne Margaret's husband also really, you know, didn't like that scene where his wife was essentially slithering around in melted chocolate, which I can't... It, it must have been super uncomfortable. She ended up getting nominated for an Oscar for that, so, I mean, good on her, but I have no idea. Maybe the beans is like a connection to that one, that thing. Uh, Album cover? Sell out. Yeah. Yes, where Roger's in the bath of the beans, which I know a lot of people hate that photo, but I don't because I love Roger. But anyway, um, I guess, I don't know. She, she ended up getting nominated for an Oscar for that. And I guess good for her because I guess it takes talent to do that and keep a straight face and like actually keep acting and look pained while doing it, instead of just having a breakdown on set, because that's probably what I would have done. So, yes, she's, like, swimming around in beans and chocolate and detergent, because she feels guilty that, like, Tommy's condition is so severe, and she still doesn't know why. So she decides to take him to this healer, 
who now we get to Jack Nicholson. Jack Nicholson plays the healer in the movie. And I have no idea what he was doing here. He was also being really creepy. Which, yeah, I guess isn't hard. Jack Nicholson has that look about him, you know? Like, maybe it's his eyebrows. But he's good at playing creepy people. He is. <sighs> Anyways, essentially, you know, what Jack Nicholson's character tells, you know, Tommy's parents is that, you know, he Tommy's not actually deaf, dumb, and blind. He's, it's triggered emotionally. It's not actually a physical condition. So he says, you know, put Tommy in front of his reflection in front of the mirror, which is where the song Go to the Mirror plays. And there's this whole scene where Tommy stares at the mirror and then his mother gets more and more frustrated and she throws Tommy through the mirror and this causes Tommy to, you know, sort of snap out of his condition. And uh, this is also that one scene where he falls into, like, a body of water, which I can't exactly remember what it was. But then he goes on this... It was like some sort of lake or ocean. Yeah. Or something. Is. He, he, he runs away and, you know, he's free. That's where the song I'm Free starts playing. There's this... I don't, I don't know if um, anybody has seen this, but there's this one meme of Tommy running away. <laughs> that one scene where it looks like it's green screened, like, really badly. But it's a part of the actual movie. I... It's really hard to explain if you haven't seen the movie, but it's very surreal. Yes, basically he sings out how he's free, which I actually adore this scene because he's like smiling and laughing and doing cartwheels and it just makes me happy, like, because I love Roger Daltrey, I love him so much, and like just he's laughing and he's smiling and I'm pretty sure I don't think he's wearing a shirt in this scene either, so... No, he isn't. I love that. I love that. But... (laughs) anyway so he's like running around and he's going through and he's talking about how he's free and yeah he is running there's some part where he's like running underwater and he's just like he's running it's very clearly a green screen and the effects are so bad but it's high quality and i don't know roger's smile just makes me happy like he he played this role so well he did (sighs) and so here's where it like does another like, complete 180 of the movie. He starts a cult, like a church around himself. So after he regains his sight and his hearing and his ability to speak, his first thought is to start a church around himself. And so he goes and he's like hang gliding around, spreading the good word of the Tommy church, which is called Tommy's Holiday Camp. And I have no idea why, but you know what? Good for him. Again, if I looked up in the sky and I saw Roger Daltrey just hang gliding above me, I would go and join. Like, I would follow him. Who wouldn't? I mean, I think the the actual explanation for why Tommy decided to start this church slash cult is that, you know, he... What happened to him, you know, it transformed him as a person and he wants to transform other people's lives as well. That's the understanding that I got. Now, I don't really understand why, like, the connection there, because I don't think anybody else, you know, in the world is deaf, dumb, and blind, you know, in the same way that Tommy was. But, like you said, good for him. And it becomes really successful, like his little cult. It it grows into this really major religion, I would say. Their leader is Roger Daltrey, and... Obviously, it was going to grow. I would join that. Like, yes. I would. Me. 
So then they go to this scene where there's this girl, Sally Simpson, and so she's, like, a big fan of Tommy, and, like, her room, her wallpaper, her room is, like, entirely Tommy, so it's all just pictures of Roger's face, and that's all I want in my life, really. But she goes around, and, like, she goes to go see him, and then, like, for some reason, they go through this montage of her life where she ends up getting married, but she's also still a child. So I have no idea what that, like, the purpose of that was. But basically she's, like, a representative, or she's representative of, like, all of Tommy's fangirls. I really don't know what to say about that scene because it doesn't really make much sense either. But then again, neither does the rest of the movie. Yeah, I definitely agree. But this is essentially where, you know, the movie starts to end. It's towards the end of the movie. Um, you know, people turn against Tommy and his religion, and, uh, it, it, it happens really fast, too, like, the transition, the time between, you know, his religion taking off and his religion collapsing is, like, only, I don't know, what, ten minutes? It, it it happens really fast. It it gives, it gives the audience kind of whiplash. Yes, I think specifically what happens is, like, he starts off his holiday camp, right, and for some reason Keith Moon shows up again as Uncle Ernie, and he's, like, on this weird float playing the organ with his feet, and he's singing about how we should all come to Tommy's holiday camp, and they're singing, come to this house, and they're all, like, swaying back and forth while they eat green food, and they're all wearing Tommy t-shirts, which I really want one, like, they should come out with that merch, because I want that, but, uh, what is it? And so, (laughs) they're at this cult, and he makes everybody deaf to and blind. He gives them blindfolds and, like, these earplugs and sort of a gag. And they all have to learn to play pinball. And he just walks through and they're all doing that. And then suddenly there's a riot. Like, it just immediately breaks out into a riot. And people start smashing the pinball machines. And they all start, like, trampling everybody. And so Tommy, like, tries to get up the rocks or whatever. And then his parents get killed. And, like... I had no idea what happened other than they just sort of got dragged in and crushed. And his parents got killed. And then he's, like, trying to run away. And eventually the riot settles down and everybody leaves. And so he has to go. He, like, finds his parents. And he's singing. He's singing again um, the Hear Me, Feel Me song. He's singing that as he sort of, like, drags the, his parents together and, like, lays them to rest. And then eventually he loses his shirt. Which, again, good for him. I approve. I feel, like, wow, Roger Daltrey spent 90% of this movie shirtless. He did. Like, he was either just wearing a jacket, or he didn't have a shirt. He wore a shirt in, like, the opening scene which he was in, and, like, that one camp scene. And other than that, he was mostly shirtless. And, you know what, they knew, they knew what they were doing with that. They did. They knew that was the reason a lot of people were going to go see it, including myself. And, you know, they made use of that. But anyway, I'm getting off top I'm getting off topic. So yes, he ends up losing his shirt. He climbs this mountain as the sun is like rising and he's singing again the Hear Me Feel Me song. And I think one thing that's really cool about this is that at Woodstock, when the Who performed at Woodstock when they were singing this, the sun also came up behind him and so like in that moment, Roger Daltrey and Tommy were like the same person. And so I did think that was really cool. I love that scene. That's probably the most iconic scene in the movie, other than the pinball wizard scene. 
And I think it was a good way to end the movie, not that it made any sense, and watching that movie left me with more questions than I could possibly imagine. Yeah. But it was, but it was very ending. aesthetically appealing. The colors were great. Yes. Yes, I think... <laughs> it was It was a good movie, but, like, I can't say I understood any of it. Like, no. I got the basic plot. I, I knew what was happening at each time, but I also didn't know what was happening. And overall, I didn't know what was happening. Yeah, I, I would say that pretty much sums up my entire experience with the movie as well. I mean, it's a very fun ride, I would say. It, it was very entertaining, especially if you, if you walk into it, you know, with zero expectation, zero knowledge of what was going to happen. All the twists, they hit you much harder than I think, you know, if you were a fan, you've listened to the album. Uh, it, 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 would, it would hit much harder. Uh, but, you know, it didn't quite make a lot of sense. Maybe we're just not grasping, like, there's some kind of deep philosophical meaning behind each and every one of the scenes that we just talked about. Maybe there is, and we just didn't get it. And that's entirely possible, too. But if we didn't get it, then, you know, that's kind of, you know, Pete Townshend's fault for making it so convoluted. <laughs> I mean, yes, both of us are pretty much the average listener. We're not, like, neither of us is sort of a genius or whatever. Like, we're, we don't understand the deeper meaning behind this. All I know is that somehow a kid who plays pinball got really famous. Like, he got famous enough to start a church around himself. And I have no idea what, like, where they were going with that. Like, how does one even stumble upon that idea in the first place? Like, where does pinball come from? I really don't know. I I wish I knew Pete's thought process behind it, but I don't. I mean, I know the, I know the album was, like, partially inspired by Pete's, you know, interactions with this Indian guru, like, spiritual healer, and... Yeah, that kind of reminded me of, you know, the Beatles going to India with um, George Harrison and how he was inspired by that kind of spiritual teaching as well. But I really think, you know, George Harrison's songs that were inspired by the Beatles' trip to India were much more coherent than this album ever was. So, I don't know. Yes. I, I don't really understand what Pete was going for here. Neither do I. I'm not sure how he got this idea, but, I mean, you can't say the songs are bad. Like, the songs are all really good, and I think the way he wrote them was good. The story itself has a lot of problems. Number one is the fact that it literally makes no sense to the average listener. (laughs) But I do think the songs he wrote were really good. Overall, the album, like, the album itself is good, even if maybe it's a little pretentious depending on what the real meaning is. Um, I don't know, but I do, I like this album a lot. Somehow this movie ended up actually winning a Golden Globe for Best Actress, so good for Anne Margaret. I mean, Anne Margaret really did, you know, put her all into this movie. Like, if if I was an actress and somebody asked me to, you know, slither around in baked beans and melt in chocolate and detergent <laughs> foam, I would have noped right out of there real quick. So, you know, props to her for putting up with that and going through it. Okay, well, the acting, I think, from everybody in this movie was actually really good. Like, I have to give it to them. Roger Daltrey did a great job with what he was given. I mean, he didn't he barely said anything in the entire movie. That's the point. But, like, he was also able to sort of portray that, like, that dead-eyed stare. 
because that's like that's what he does is like he's he was very good at giving a lifeless stare for the first half of the movie so i have to applaud him for that i think keith moon did a great job being terrifyingly creepy everybody did a good job portraying their abuse of tommy i guess that's kind of weird to say but it's true yeah i think the acting was good in this movie the music was great Roger was great. Roger was beautiful. He was gorgeous. You know that one thing of Lady Gaga? Like, the I one can't remember exactly Twitter what she's saying. The one saying. meme? I think I know what you're talking about. Yeah, where she's like, something completely original, never been done before, like all that. Yeah. That's how I feel about Roger Daltrey. Yeah. But we know. Yes. He made this movie, really. Like, that was the reason I enjoyed this movie so much. And that was the reason I went back to watch it again was because of Roger Daltrey. Oh, my goodness. I just love him. But, yes, overall, this movie is a wild trip, but it's very entertaining, and I, I think if you're able to handle the really, cre- like, the creepy parts and the kind of horrifying implications of everything, then I think you're good to watch it. It's really, it's not for everybody, and I know that because... Like, there are people who watch it and then immediately hate everything about it because it's so creepy. But if you're able to handle that kind of stuff, I'd say go ahead and watch it. But it really, it isn't for everybody. So, I think that might be its one, like, its main downfall is that it's not universally loved. Thank you for listening, and as always, we want to thank you, our listeners, and thank you to Kevin McLeod for the music. Be sure to tune in next week for our next episode. <laughs>